Next week, we've got a guest speaker, James Pond uh, from Transitions Global. Transitions Global is a, is a transitions house for underage girls in Cambodia that are rescued out of trafficking. So basically in Phnom Penh and around there, um, where it's kind of become the sex tourism capital of the world, and, and it's kind of a gnarly situation. Uh, when girls are rescued by organizations like IJM and, and stuff like that when there's raids, the, the sad part is girls 18 and over, there's really nothing for them, and they, they kind of just get turned, turned out, and there's no one there to really help them. Underage girls, uh, the government's willing to kind of uh, steward and take responsibility for them. And so the underage girls are placed in a transitions home, which uh, is what Transitions Global is. James and Athena Pond kind of moved from Cincinnati 2004 to, to start this. Phenomenal ministry, uh, phenomenal success rate at, at basically redeeming these lives of these girls. And Antioch's going to be heavily involved with Transitions Global. There's going to be a team going there uh, to Cambodia later this year. And there's some really cool things that over time we'll be able to kind of explain and, and catch you up on. But anyways, James is going to be here next week, and this is kind of what you need to know. Uh, I asked him to speak on a subject next week that's pretty rowdy. Uh, and, and he kind of said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I think Antioch can take the punch. Uh, but you definitely, definitely want to be aware of that in terms of uh, kids um, and just kind of knowing that, that it's going to be more on the mature side. So just trying to give you a heads up, and then next week we'll remind you just in case. Um, but, but next week's just going to be a little bit more uh, mature in, in theme. So uh, heads up that way, and, and I think it would be well worth your time to come. James is a phenomenal guy. Uh, not only was he special forces and then uh, private security, but also has his MDiv, you know, and not too many guys uh, doing what he he's doing have the kind of pedigree that he does. So uh, it'll be a, a great opportunity, I think, next week to be able to interact with James. So just a heads up that way. What we're doing this morning, though, is we kind of jumped into this series called uh, The Relevance of Christianity in Age of Skepticism. And last week, we just talked about a verse where Paul basically says, hey, look, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to um, my Jewish friends, and he says, and it's foolishness to my Greek friends. It's, it's, it's really this difficult um, tension thing, that the cross of Christ. And so we kind of talked about that last week, and in the last two weeks as I've been thinking about it and kind of what I wanted to do this week, uh, I, I literally, I don't live in this world. For me, I, it began in this world. I became a Christian really exploring the truth claims of Christianity. Like, it had to be true. Like, you know, you, you don't just do this or give your life away because, you know, it has some kind of therapeutic value. You know, like for me, the thing had to shake out and there had to be something solid beneath it. And, and so I spent a lot of time there. It's not where I live really anymore. Like, I don't, I don't think along these lines day to day of uh, I have to have confidence in my Christian faith because I do. I just, I, I do. I believe God answers prayer. I believe I... Uh, Christianity is true, and I have, a, I have a great degree of confidence that way. However, um, I think that there's a lot of you or a lot of people that you know where the big stumbling block for them is an intellectual one. It's still an intellectual one. That uh, they're still asking that question of, this has to be true. It, it can't just be therapeutic, and, and how do I know it's true? And what's some of the, the rationality going on here with Christianity? And, and maybe they're in relationships with Christians that can't really speak to those issues with them, and that just gives them greater pause. Does that make sense? 
Uh, so this morning, I really felt like we needed to do something different. It's not preaching, it's more teaching. It's, it's going to be different that way, but I really want to kind of bring you into some conversations on the intellectual side of, of uh, theism and Christianity and discuss some of that with you. We can only scratch the surface and then hopefully at Redux you can chase something further if you want. But my whole goal here is the one thing I think Scripture never, the one way Scripture never defines faith Scripture never defines faith as going into a corner, closing your eyes, um, covering, covering your eyes with your hands, and, and just going, you know, I think it's true, I think it's true, I think it's true, and trying to will yourself into believing something that your, your mind can't embrace. Does that make sense? And I feel like our definition of faith often degenerates down to that, that faith is just finding the will to believe even though, you, you know, as a rational being, you shouldn't. And, you know, and so then you or your friend is going like, well, I can't do that. Like that, what? That just doesn't make sense to me, you know. And, and that's not the way that Scripture defines faith. Okay, it's just not. Faith is, is seeing a God who is there and really believing that the God who is there is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. So, I mean, it's a, I mean, faith from a biblical perspective is a lot more about trust uh, than it is kind of conjuring up some kind of mental image of, of concrete reality, even though deep down inside you have all these doubts. And so if, if it's really about believing the God who's there and trusting that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, then we really have to have confidence, right? I mean, confidence is a huge thing in terms of grounding and having a foundation for your faith. And so you see Jesus never looking at people when they ask him questions and going, um, well, gee, that's just stupid. You just need to believe harder. You know, or uh, you're an idiot. How come you don't know that already? Or, you know, don't ask questions like that. Um, you're going to be out of my cult. You know, I mean, he's not a cult leader like that that just wants people to toe a line, but he's not going to give them reasons. When people come to ask Jesus questions, he is the most tender, um, <laughs> smartest guy there is and takes all the time in the world to unpack that. Does that make sense? So preaching is, in my mind, a lot more speaking kind of some of the truths and, and applying that. What you see with Jesus and his disciples is, is that a lot of times when Jesus is done preaching, they kind of get away to the back room and his disciples are like, okay, yeah, kind of get it. Kind of a little bit. Um, help us out a little bit more. Does that make sense? You know those passages in Scripture, and Jesus is like, okay, well, here's what, here's what I meant by that. This is what's really going on. And he kind of breaks it down on that level. And so, again, this morning I just want to kind of pull back into that room and have a little bit more of a, of a different discourse than, than typical preaching. And so to do that, I'm going to just ask you guys to, um, you know, think a little harder than what I would normally ask you to think. Okay? So if you're tired, there's coffee in the commons. You can go grab some right now, come back. But I just will kind of tackle it at a little bit of a higher level than, than maybe what we normally would. So is that okay? Is that cool? One person. Okay, you and I are going to have a great conversation. <laughs> um, is it cool for you guys? I mean, okay. All right. All right, the first thing, um, I, it's, it's kind of a progression here, but I want to start with morality. And, and there's a morality, when we talk about it, it's like it's Jerry Falwell and it's the moral majority and it's, it's, it's this and that and the other. And, 
Um, morality, when we pull it into the philosophical conversation about theism and atheism, has to do with what's called the moral argument. Okay? Now, the moral argument, as it's usually framed, is, is framed a heck of a lot more from the Christian side because this would tend to be one of those arguments that really lends credence to theism. Now, the moral argument is basically this. We have uh, a sense, a very strong abiding sense, uh, that there are objective, transcendent moral categories. Okay? Now, what I mean by that is the, the deep abiding sense that... Um, that the realization that torturing or the belief that torturing babies for fun is immoral, okay? That that's universal for everyone. It's not just a cultural norm for, say, America or me because I'm enlightened and live in the 20s. But, but my sense, and I think our sense, is the belief that torturing babies for fun is wrong is a, a belief in a categorical um, statement about normative ethics, Okay? that it's transcendent, which means it sits up above us, and it, it speaks down to us, and it's not just something we've agreed in our culture that, hey, we're going to say collectively that torturing babies for fun is wrong, but we actually think it has some sort of a claim. And even if we went to a society where together as a group, they decided in our culture torturing babies for fun is going to be okay, uh, or Nazi Germany where, hey, torturing um, a bunch of Jews and killing them is going to be okay, that, that even if they as a culture agree to that, we're going to still say, no, you're wrong. And what we're going to be doing and saying that they're wrong is appealing to something that's higher than culture. It's a transcendent kind of uh, normative ethic, normative meaning it's, it's normative across the board, not just in particular situations. And so we have this sense that morality is transcendent, that it comes down from a moral law giver, that these are laws, these are uh, a moral code, if you will, that is, that is put down on us from, the, from, from uh, who created us. It's not just something we're self-creating. Does that make sense? I mean, the, the, the classic example would be um, the Declaration of Independence and talking about the right to oppose tyranny is something that's given to us because we have these truths that are self-evident, okay? That, that we have inalienable rights. Uh, inalienable rights means you can't separate them out from us, that we have this kind of right that, that's just in virtue of being human. And so we're kind of familiar in, in Western culture, certainly Christian culture uh, or Judeo-Christian culture, with this idea of, of, of deep truths with regard to morality and, and ethics, okay? So the moral argument would be simply, we have this sense that morality is not just a social construction, okay? Um, if it's more than a social construction, then there has to be somebody who's, who's grounding that, who, who created it, and who's putting it onto us, um, and therefore it's an argument for theism. Does that make sense? And so the challenge for the atheist with regard to the moral argument, is to come up with a sense of morality that fits our intuitions ab about the truth of morality, that it is objective. Okay? So the, the question for the atheist is, if there is no God, and it's all just uh, carbon atoms or carbon molecules or, 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 I don't know, whatever, it's a bunch of, it's a hodgepodge of stuff just banging around and that's all it is, where do you get or how do you account for morality? Okay? Uh, now, 
if, if you know, come next spring, we'll be doing at Kilns College, the, I teach a class called uh, The History and Philosophy of Atheism. So if you really want to get into this stuff, that's, take that class in the spring and we'll, we'll really dive into this. But I want to kind of separate it out. Christians can often be really lazy in our thinking. Okay, I can say that because I'm a Christian. I'm attacking my own group, whatever. But we're really lazy in our thinking a lot of times. And so what we can typically do with this as Christians is go, atheists can't be moral. Well, that, that's, that's a ridiculous statement. Okay? The moral argument isn't whether an atheist can be moral. It's whether they can give a worldview account of morality. Okay? There are plenty of people in churches who claim to be Christians who are amoral. Okay? If you followed them around, if you dug deep enough, if you found their secrets, you'd be like, wow, really? So there's plenty of Christians that are amoral, and there are plenty of atheists who might not, in my view, have a, a grounding for the belief in, in a, a certain type of morality. However, they are moral. They, they practice uh, a certain lifestyle. They, they have a certain care and concern for their fellow man, whatever it may be. So when we're talking about the moral argument, we're not saying Christians are moral and atheists aren't. We're talking about a foundation for the moral framework itself. Does that make sense? So don't ever make the claim atheists can't be moral or aren't moral. That's just, you know, each person is moral or not moral on their own merits, okay? So we don't want to say that, but what we, want, what we really want to do is challenge the atheists and just say, hey, look, this is a real problem, I, I feel, because you can't give an account for transcendent or objective morality. The, if you go to Barnes Noble right now, the current issue of Philosophy Now has this little kid with his hair done up like a devil. Kind of interesting picture. And, and the whole lead thing is the death of morality. And it's got five lead articles all talking about, from an atheist standpoint, let's just get rid of morality. Seriously, I mean, it's, you know, we, it, it's, let's just stop pretending that there is such a thing as, as objective morality because there can't be on an atheist worldview. And the sooner we just get rid of those intuitions, then, you know, our worldview will make sense and, and, and you know, it's going to argue for the truth of that atheistic worldview. Um, and then you'd get people coming back and saying, hey, look, um, just because we can't give an account of objective morality, we can still, as a society, uh, all band together and, and say we're going to have certain, certain things that we agree to because we think living that way is, is better. Um, so we're going to put protections up for kids so that we don't torture kids, things like that. But the point is, is uh, from an atheistic standpoint, you really can't ground morality. Let me try and explain it this way. Uh, if, all, if evolution, unguided evolution, is all there is, you can argue that evolution has given rise to a certain uh, sense in morality, meaning over millions of years, evolution has blindly orchestrated it so that social values, social concerns would be reinforced because um, you're going to have greater survival, uh, su survivability by having certain social behaviors than if you're, you don't have those behaviors. Does that make sense? So you can talk about evolution guiding things in a blind way and giving rise to certain social norms that we can call morality. Does that make sense? Okay. But on that view, you can't look at somebody and say they ought 
to do something or not do something. They don't, I don't, you don't, on that viewpoint, we don't owe evolution anything. Evolution might have helped shape, you know, whatever, whatever, according to this view, but we don't owe it anything. You know, there's no, we don't walk around with an ought, this big ought with a capital O that, that somehow we ought to do something, not torture babies uh, for fun or torture animals for fun or whatever. And if we don't do that, we're somehow violating a moral code, a, a transcendent thing, and we're not doing what ought to be done. Evolution doesn't tell us an ought. On the atheist worldview, it can just be a mechanism for shaping it, but it can't give an ought. Does that make sense? The, uh, the best way of trying to, from an atheistic standpoint, cash out morality is, is utilitarianism and trying to correlate that most moral things are rational things and that rational things tend to correlate with pleasure. And so you begin to get an argument that says morality and rationality correlate with pleasure and we, in some sense, ought to go with rationality because it's going to gratify us the most. It's going to give us the most pleasure. Uh, and you begin to get a little bit of an ought there, maybe. Um, it's a little bit, it's way different than what we would say as Christians, that there, there really is this moral code. And if we don't do it, we violate it. If we do do it, we're, we're being obedient to it. But it, we ought. There's a, there's a way in which we ought to live. Okay, does that make sense? So utilitarianism, they can say rationality, they can say morality, and those two things are tied, and then pleasure, and say, so therefore, all things being equal, this worldview is going to give rise to morality, and you're really uh, irrational if you don't follow in with that. Can you understand that argument? Still, still thinking with me? Kind of? Okay. So, but here's, here's the pushback, and then we'll move on, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get out of the tough sledding a little bit, but... <clears throat> I just got done reading uh, two, two weeks ago. I read a book on North Korea. Now, North Korea, you know, the most oppressive totalitarian regime in the world today, uh, it's crazy. Well, that regime, communist kind of regime, was being propped up economically by the Soviet Union. Uh, cheap cheap uh, fuel, uh, favored status, trading status, all sorts of things. They were really being, their economy was really being propped up by the Soviet Union. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, uh, it utterly um, destroyed the economy in North Korea. I mean, just, just destroyed the economy in North Korea. So during the 90s, you had upwards of 2 million North Koreans die of starvation. So you read this book, and it's a lot of first-hand accounts, and and it's a crazy thing reading how all of a sudden food begins to slowly trickle out over a period of months, you know, and then it begins to be nothing. And then people begin to kind of slowly realize what's going on because you don't have a good media. I mean, so it's all happening unbeknownst to the populace, right? And, and after a while, you know, people are eating tree bark and everything and, and trying to stay alive. Um, there's no satellite pictures in North Korea. You won't see lights at night. This might be changing, but until recently at least, you look at those images, you know, the satellite images at night, and you know how you see lights everywhere? The whole of North Korea in those nighttime satellite images is dark, 100%. Because during the 90s, uh, when everyone was starving and everything else, uh, people would climb, they basically cannibalized the electrical grid for, for copper wire and, and would climb the poles and take things. 
uh, to try and be able to barter and trade with it to have some sort of value, okay? So, I mean, you have, in the 90s, they lost their whole electrical grid. Crazy, right? So, uh, here's the point. In this, there's two or three different people, firsthand testimonies, that tried to make the same point in a different way, and it was really interesting reading all three of them. But the basic point was this. Look, when culture is starving, when all these people are starving, the people who die first are the ones who have the greatest degree of empathy. The people who die first are the ones that have the greatest degree of empathy. So if you have this sense of value in other people and, and, and a care of their plight and their condition, and you're, that's in tension with your own, you're going to die first. Uh, and they would talk about how it was always the grandparents who would go first and then the parents. And you literally had a gazillion orphans running around because the, the grandparents and the parents would always defer to the kids. I mean, just think of your own kids. If everyone's wasting away, everyone's starving, and you've got just this, this little bit, you know, your natural instinct is to give it to your kids. And so... Grandparents die, parents die, and then it leaves this kid because the kid's been, been getting the most food. Um, and so you see this thing where those that have the greatest degree of empathy are the first ones to die. Uh, those who are willing to scrap and wrestle and fight tend to survive. The ones who kill empathy. So this one gal, you know, talked about she you know, as a school teacher, and she started watching the students waste away and die, and then everybody just stopped coming to school and all this other stuff. And she, she literally had to stop caring, you know, and kill that sense of empathy. Um, on a utilitarian view, if you're trying to say that morality and rationality are, are so closely tied that they go with happiness, and utilitarianism is all about the pleasure principle in the sense of we, we avoid pain and we seek pleasure, Okay. And what has the greatest utility, that's where the name comes, the greatest utility in giving us pleasure and minimizing pain. And so Bentham and uh, John Stuart Mill and this whole school of utilitarianism basically derived a worldview and an ethical system around this idea that avoiding pain and seeking pleasure is really what's at bottom of all these things, okay? So if you're saying morality and rationality are very closely tied and they're tied to pleasure. You can make that argument in America because having empathy, uh, being a certain kind of rational person and a certain kind of altruistic person, if you will, has social value to it, right? We, we all would rather some rich guy be a philanthropist than not claim anything on his tax returns about giving money, okay? It has social value in America to be moral, Okay? Therefore, it's rational because it's going to help elevate you or make your life easier or better. However, that doesn't translate in a limited good society like North Korea in the 90s. Morality now becomes, from a pleasure standpoint, irrational. Does that make sense? It's irrational to have this certain morality because instead of getting pleasure... It's actually going to uh, put you in a situation where a greater degree of harm is going to come to you. In fact, your own survival is at risk. And so therefore, if you revert to kind of a competitive type behavior and survival of the fittest and you scrap and, and seek only your own good, 
there's nothing about utilitarianism, no matter what Mill says, you know, that you should take the hit for the better of the side. There's nothing, that, even with what he wants or on an evolutionary worldview, that can say to you in scrapping in North Korea and only thinking about yourself that you're doing something wrong. That you're acting in an immoral way. There's nothing on that view at that moment that says you stealing food from this little kid or something like that, that there's any tension there. And so we come back to kind of the original premise that we, we don't just think that it's wrong um, to torture babies for fun in our culture. We think it's wrong universally. We think that there's an inherent dignity in people. We think that morality is universal when it hits those levels. And for it to be such, there has to be something that makes that cohere and makes sense out of that. So for there to be objective morality, that morality has to be given. For us to be underneath it and owe it something such that we ought to behave in a certain way, it has to be given down like a moral code or a moral law. And that's where theism looks at it and says, we were created in the image of God, that people have inalienable rights, therefore you owe them certain things because they have the image of God in them, and that God has commanded us certain things. That's called a, a divine command ethic. Therefore you owe God your obedience because he is over you. And so on both accounts, the image of God in people and the fact that God is commanding a certain kind of moral obedience, we are under this duty or this obligation, uh, obligation, and it makes sense of that. You ought to behave morally. Whether you believe in God or not, I still feel like you ought to behave morally. Whether you're a part of a culture that thinks it's okay collectively to torture babies for fun, I'm still going to disagree and say, no, you're wrong. You as a culture or you individually ought to behave in a moral way. It doesn't matter whether your general gave you uh, an order. It doesn't matter whether your friends and your peers were doing it. You as a human being have an obligation to act morally regardless of social conditions. Okay? You tracking with me? Okay, so we're, we're getting into the intricacies here of philosophy of religion. And, and so this is the moral argument. Now, the moral argument, the spillover, has to do with moral relativism. So if we want to transition just a second here and talk about moral relativism. So if there is no objective morality, okay, then all things are relative. And so to be rational and consistent on, on an atheistic worldview, we begin to have a view of, moral, uh, of morality that's very subjective and not objective, very subjective, okay? And we call that moral relativism. It's all kind of relative, okay? We've all run into this. And so in American culture, we've begun to get away with absolutes, and we want to just say, well, that's nice for you. I'm glad you believe that way, but that's not how I believe. And, and basically behind that premise is this. One person's view of morality is no better than another person's view of morality because there's no objective thing to tie back to, right? So they're all just individual creations, and hey, yours is nice, works for you, mine's nice, works for me, um, let's leave it at that, okay? So we've all run into moral relativism, whatever makes you happy. We could get into utilitarianism and American pragmatism and really what's underneath all that. Um, we don't have time. 
Okay, but here's, here's the real deal with, um, let's draw this out. Here's the real deal with moral relativism. Is what you're basically saying is if you make a truth claim, okay, which means you're claiming something objective, that it's not relative, that it's objective, uh, moral relativism uh, looks at that and says, you're trying to claim truth and that's wrong. Now, real simply, the, the undercutter to this whole thing is you turn around and say, okay, but is what you just said right? Okay, um, you believe there's objective truth in an absolute morality. See, you're wrong because it's all relative. Well, is that true? Well, what do you mean? Like, I'm telling you, there is no truth. There is no objective truth. There is no absolute in all situations something that's right. So quit claiming that there's anything that's right. Do you mean me to take that as what you're saying is right or true? Am I supposed to believe that, that your statement is correct and that it binds not only for you but binds me as well? Well, yes, you idiot. Nobody should have these view of absolutes. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a, a very circular argument, moral relativism is. And so you can, you can play games with people all day long, and I know that many of you have heard these examples, you know, but, you know, someone says, look, there are no moral, you know, absolutes, everything's relative. You know, you just punch somebody in the face and, and they get really angry with you. Why are you being angry? Um, I decided at that moment that it was okay for me to punch you in the face. And you can't tell me that what I decided was wrong, you know? Or you grab their stereo and walk out of the room. What are you doing? Well, I'm stealing your stereo. You can't do that. Well, why not? You know, I mean, so it's a, that's very anecdotal and very silly in some sense from a philosophical standpoint. But, but logic matters. It matters. Especially when someone's trying to bully you with rationality and logic, they have to be honest and integrous and have the virtues of the mind, um, intellectual virtues, to be consistent. And that's a very circular argument about moral relativism. I don't want to belabor it. What I want to do is go to the next thing that comes from moral relativism. Moral relativism is what has given us our modern view of tolerance and, and intolerance. Okay, this is a big deal. Um, the way it works now, because our society takes—we will get into pragmatism. Um, after World War, or after the Civil War, so you've got a group of guys coming out of Boston, uh, a whole bunch of intellectuals. That's where the intellectual elites were up there by all those old schools, Harvard and whatnot. Um, but in that kind of New England area, you have guys like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., uh, William James, and you have this whole school that became American pragmatism. Now, they fight in the Civil War. Now, in the Civil War, beginning in, in uh, 1861, absolutes are playing a huge role, are they not? Moral absolutes? In the form of abolition in saying it is, it is categorically wrong to enslave somebody um, against their will 
just because of their skin color. Okay, it's an it's a moral absolute. Okay, so you've got this civil war. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who later becomes Supreme Court justice in America, shapes a lot of. Uh, the way the court now operates and other things, but he fights, gets wounded several times with bullets, watches 600,000 Americans die. 600,000 Americans die. Disease, um, the war itself, all sorts of different things, okay? 600,000 Americans die. Oliver Wendell Holmes gets, gets the end of it. Charles uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species, published in 1859, by the time the Civil War ends, is now in, in America, being printed in America. And the intellectual climate in post-Civil War America was very, uh, very much one of embracing the ideas of Darwin and beginning to figure out how does that tie to theology, how does it, how does it tie to epistemology, which is your view of truth, okay? Um, what's true, what counts as true. And it begins to come into all these different things. And American pragmatism really was born of this idea of saying we need to take as truth not what's objective. It's wrong to hold somebody against their will if they have the wrong skin color, etc. Because those things aren't real. We made those up. Okay? Uh, we might like them, but we made those up. Okay, so there really are no moral absolutes. And so American pragmatism comes to this view of, hey, what works in guiding a culture to the place that we're not going to be killing each other like we just did in the Civil War. Okay, so Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, the more strongly you believe in moral absolutes, the more likely you are to come to blows over them. If you believe strong enough that there are these transcendent values of not having slaves, if you believe it enough, uh, you're willing to go to war over it, are you not? And so we can't have these absolutes held so strongly because we're going to be fighting that's not good. What we need to do is have this view that says um, truth kind of evolves as we find what's pragmatic to keeping society together as a whole and moving forward. Do you understand kind of the idea there? What do we know that as? We know that as politically correct. So what we're going to do is we're going to make the program now in our education systems, with the courts, with other things, we're going to make the program with pragmatism about finding truth that works for our society and our culture so that we don't end up killing each other. Okay, now what's the enemy? Well, the enemy's kind of those people that think things a little bit too strongly and aren't really willing to kind of go with the flow here in the majority. So now here we are with modern-day tolerance. What is, it, what is the tolerance argument? The tolerance argument is you Christians and religious people, uh, you're intolerant. Why? Because uh, you believe other people are wrong and you're right. That's intolerant. And, and you believe it a little bit too strongly. And so we always lose the tolerance argument. And by definition, if you're not on, on this extreme of believing in moral absolutes, and if you're not a Christian, then you're with the majority. You're politically correct. You're going with the flow. And you're, you're tolerant. Do you understand how that's been framed out? 
Now, here's what's so crazy about it. The word tolerance, by definition, implies what? The word tolerance, by definition, implies disagreement. I mean, write that down. By definition, tolerance implies that there's something that needs to be tolerated. We don't tolerate things that happen to be totally what we're in agreement with. There's no, you, know, you see what I'm saying? If, if you're totally in agreement, there's no tolerance. There's only like-mindedness. Tolerance is when you're different than me, and I look at it and say, that's okay. You have a right to have different views, opinions, etc., and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tolerate you. And we're going to have civic discourse, debate. We might even argue and be passionate about it, but I'm not going to kill you for your views. I'm not going to oppress you for your views. And so the word tolerant, I mean, it's funny because here's JFK. I mean, tolerance has evolved just in, literally in the last 20, 30 years. But here's JFK saying the same thing. Tolerance implies no lack of commitment to one's own beliefs. Rather, it condemns the oppression or persecution of other people's beliefs. It doesn't mean that you can't have your own beliefs. It just means you're going to allow freedom of speech to people of differing views. That's really where Freedom of speech comes from in America. We're not going to oppress and remove the voice of others who tend to disagree with us. We're going to allow free speech. Free speech implies that people are going to be saying stuff that might make us uncomfortable. But that we're going to give them the right because we all have the inherent right to be heard. Because what happens is if we're going to have public discourse and be heard... What ought to happen is a rational culture listens to the arguments on both sides, and the one that wins is the more rational or logical. And if you don't have a good reason for believing these things, these things will probably die out. So we're going to allow ideas to be there, and we're going to let people figure out who has the better arguments and who doesn't. So free speech implies difference. Tolerance implies disagreement. So what's become of this whole program, it's not like a, an insidious program, it's just the way America's been wired up now in, in kind of a secular culture. The way it's going has produced this kind of momentum of political correctness, and so what's said now is, if you're religious or you believe absolutes, you're intolerant, because you believe that strongly. And again, just like with, with relativism, it's like, wow, really? Sounds like you believe that I'm intolerant pretty strongly. Um, wow, and, and it sounds like because you're so right and you believe it so strongly that you just can't tolerate me. Wow, you know, I, it, it, let me read how I wrote it because I, I wrote it so that I could read it. But let me read it this way. It's come to mean that I have to agree with your opinion if your opinion is non-religious and I have to discount my opinion if my opinion is religious. Which is really saying, tolerance has come to mean that I should believe exactly as you do about religion or I'm wrong. And it can't be tolerated that I'm wrong. So there's something really strange going on. Here's G.K. Chesterton. He says this. I'll give you a couple G.K. Chesterton quotes because they're fun, but... Uh, Chesterton says it's not the one that you have, Stephen. <laughs> um, Chesterton says this, the point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, 
is to close it on something solid. The point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to be able to close it on something solid. Um, Chesterton also says this, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who accept dogma and know it, and those who accept dogma and don't know it. Now, what I would say based on that Chesterton quote is, I'm okay saying I, I have some strong convictions about truth and about morality and about an objective morality. Um, I have some strong views on that. Okay? I have dogma. I have doctrine. And I know it. Do you have to believe exactly like I do? No. I mean, that's what the guys coming to Jesus were saying. Like, hey, you know, Caesar says we should give taxes to Caesar. What should we do? And Jesus is like, Look, man, I don't care. Give Caesar Caesar's money. Whose picture's on the coin anyway? I don't care about that. But they're trying to make Jesus be so dogmatic that nothing else in society can be tolerated. And Jesus is like, look, I I got better things to talk about. Go give Caesar his money. You know, I mean, uh, Shane Claiborne at the Justice Conference is like, look, Caesar made the money. God made the fish. You know, give Caesar the money and keep the fish, you know, or or whatever. Like, uh, because Jesus, you remember the miracle? Jesus said, grab the fish. There was a coin in the fish's mouth. Anyways, that was a joke that didn't make sense. The, uh, the idea is I can have very, very strong beliefs and live in a society with people that disagree from me, and I can tolerate them differing from me. Totalitarianism is when I say I'm not going to tolerate, and I'm going to totally dominate this group or this culture so that everything has to come in alignment with me. I can have my strong beliefs and tolerate not, not have a totalitarian view. However, we're dangerously becoming close by not really being rigorous thinkers to thinking that political correctness is somehow immune from its own charges and that it believes itself very strongly. It feels like it's enlightened, it's better, it's proud, it's above other views that are lesser. And because these are stupid views and lesser, and they believe things really strongly, that's, that's silly and it's backwards and it's oh so, uh, you know, it's oh so 1800s. And so we shouldn't really tolerate it because it's backwards. And if, I'm, if we're not going to tolerate it, then we've got to begin to use the mechanisms at our disposal, political influence, government influence, um, power, to begin to suppress or get rid of this thing that's just oh so backwards. And now all of a sudden, the tolerance movement, the political correct movement, begins to have an impulse within it of acting totalitarian. Do you get that? Just watch Bill Maher. Funny as all get out. But I mean, he literally believes backwards people should be locked up so that the rest of us can evolve and move on. Um, so it's, it's an interesting inconsistency. So if we're going to talk about theism and atheism and religion and Christianity and try and have a confidence underneath some of these things, one of the things I want to just say is don't, don't be bullied because people have this arrogance about their viewpoints they hold something just as strongly as you do. They just don't realize it. Um, secondly, morality into um, ethics and absolute morality are coherent and into a view of tolerance 
is coherent on the Christian side. This view of no morality into kind of a moral relativism, into kind of a weird view of, of tolerance, begins to break down and act really strange on an atheistic side. It doesn't have to necessarily, like I said, you can have good atheists and bad Christians. It doesn't have to. From a worldview standpoint, the program begins to act really squirrely. Um, let's fast forward. Here's what I would say about America. As much as we like diversity, this is, this is, and I use liberal very particular here, okay? A type of liberalism that is so enamored with diversity. Um, this is what I have to say that as much as we or they like diversity, what they really want is everyone to think the same way that they do. So there's an inconsistency to that ethic or or that value, diversity. Now here's what I would say about Christians. When I go shopping, because here's what I tried to set up last week. Christians, because we talk about Jesus, are intolerant. You say it's Jesus. You say you got to choose Jesus. You you say he's the only way. Man, it's so intolerant. It's so judgmental. It's so whatever. And what I would just simply say is, look, when I go into a store and choose a shirt, I don't go to all other hundred shirts and tell them how wrong they are. You know, I go in, I look around, I make a judgment, I make an assessment, I grab the shirt and I say, this shirt is good. Okay? I'm more concerned with the truth claims of Christianity than I am about running around everyone else and telling them they're wrong. Now, is it implied that if I think this one's right, that I therefore think that one's wrong? Yeah. Does that make me intolerant? No. It means I have a belief. Just the same as you do, just the same as you do, just the same as that religion does. Every religion is inherently intolerant. All major religions make claims to truth. But it doesn't mean that we've got this active program of suppression or hate. It just means we think this one's true. And we can tolerate and we can argue for this. We can have discourse. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to punch you in the face. Does that make sense? So this claim that Christians are, are intolerant because we have this truth claim in Jesus. Everybody has truth claims. Everybody has truth claims. And truth claims by nature, okay, are exclusive. It's Okay to have truth claims. It's okay okay to think that other things are less true or not true because you think this is true. And it's okay to argue for those things and to reason for those things. That's public discourse and it's free speech and it's tolerance. And let's not let anybody tell us that we're somehow different just because we're Christians. Because all people have truth claims. Here's where I want to go just personal personal testimony-wise. A little bit of time we have left. This is not an argument um, per se, this is not a, the strongest argument for theism or Christianity. It's the one that has meant the most to me. And it, it is a philosophical argument. It's just not a knockdown, drag out, prove that, that Jesus rose, rose from the dead argument. But let me give you what has meant the most to me over the years. And it's, co- the, the word is coherence, but it's just coherence theory. That this world is rational. And so when you plug rationality into the formula, things begin to cohere. Does that make sense? 
So my Christianity, when I plug it into my, my lenses, into my glasses, and I look through my Christian worldview, what's, what's been amazing for me these last 15 years, okay, is how coherent everything has become in looking through these lenses. And that is a confirmation for me personally as to the veracity of Christianity or the Christian worldview. Let me kind of put a point to it. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, and he called it Theology as Poetry. And what he was basically trying to say with that title was he was saying that, that theology not only has truth to it, hard, cold facts to it, it also has a poetic side to it where it really helps make sense of things. Art, we know, hits us in a different way than scientific arguments do. They help flesh things out, and, and it's representative and symbolic, and it makes us go, oh, I get the metaphor. I get the deeper meaning. I understand it. And Lewis is saying, look, there's a poetry to theology. There's coherence to this. And when we talk about theology, we're doing art just as much as we're doing science. And Lewis says this in that article. He says this. Uh, we'll put it on the board. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's genius right there, that quote. I've hung on to it for 15 plus years. We see the sun, that's the sun, it exists. But it also has a functional role in that it illuminates and gives light. And I see other things, and I can only see those things because there's a sun. And so it's existence is doubly confirmed, one, by looking at it, and two, by seeing other things because of it. And when I look at Christianity, when I read the Bible, which in, you know, is, it says of itself is, is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it, it cuts you, and it teaches you, and it instructs you, and it gives life in certain ways, when I come to Christianity, there are things that come into place that I find myself nodding in agreement and going, this makes sense. Now, because they make sense, it doesn't make it true, but if it's true, you would expect to see it make sense. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So this argument isn't just because it's coherent, it makes it true. But if it is true, you would expect it to be coherent. So for me personally, just in the confidence of my faith, and you're only going to get that through prayer and Bible reading. That's why I, I really honestly believe there's so many people running around with no confidence to their faith. Why? Well, you're anemic because you haven't fed it. And if you're not praying, if you're not talking to God, if you're not reading the Bible, you're not going to nurture any kind of a, oh, wow, that's cool. Man, I never would have guessed. Wow, that makes sense. You know what? Well, I'm really experiencing the, the pain of disobeying God. That's what it said. What, you know, there's no coherence if you're not interacting with, with the ideas or with the truth claims or with the relationship that we have with God. And so for pers uh, personally for me, as we talk about morality and then into this idea of truth and then this idea of tolerance and these kinds of things, the last thing in that is just saying, man, I have a view of the coherence of Christianity and that it makes everything make sense that is deep and meaningful to me. And I just would hope that at Antioch, with classes like Rick Gerhardt is going to teach, classes at Kilns College, um, the things we try to make available to you, that there would be the ability for you to wrestle with these things and come to a deep confidence that faith isn't just going into a corner and hiding and closing my eyes and going, man, I wish it was true, I wish it was true, I wish it was true. But actually rolling up your sleeves, digging into it and beginning to go, man, there's something underneath all this. 
And that just gives me a confidence, and I get excited about learning. And now when I go to the book of Proverbs, and it talks about wisdom and discernment and knowledge and run hard after these things and, and grab for them and digest them and want more and crave more, that I get it because that little bit that I've already gotten makes me want more. And if there's this much that I can have in terms of coherence and confidence, well, then if I keep going after it, there's probably more that I can have in terms of coherence and confidence. And we find ourselves doing what the wise person does in the book of Proverbs, which is running hard after God with a big smile on our face that there's something there that we're not making up. And it's not just Santa Claus and wishful thinking. And so I, I, I hope that you know at Antioch you can push and ask questions. We're going to do Redux in just a minute. I brought you my side of the conversation. Stick around right, right after we close here. Bring me the pushback and bring me your side of the conversation. But just know that at Antioch, the conversation is always going and we care. We care about helping you or interacting with you with regard to logic, worldview, Christianity, faith, confidence. And we want you to be able to go out and not be intolerant but to be able to be a mature Christian, a thinking Christian, that hopefully brings some maturity to what looks like to me a ridiculously immature world. Um, that's a wish, it's a desire, it's a hope, it's a prayer. So let's go ahead and close on that. Um, uh, let's close. Father, we, uh, we do just commit to you. We commit to you this church. We commit to you our lives. And we... We also commit to you our desires and our questions and our needs. And there are people here, whether it's the husband that comes only once every two months because he has a hard time believing in Christianity, whether it's the person that's going through intense suffering right now, whatever it is, I know there are people here that struggle with their faith and they're looking for bedrock and they want confidence. They want the ability to just anchor down into it. And so, Father, I just pray for us. I pray for them. Let us be in dialogue. Let us know that if we, if we ask questions, you're okay with that. If we seek, we will find. You're just not going to shy away from them. So, Father, let us understand that you are a loving God and that you do love us. And let us come to you with all that we've got. And I just pray that you would meet us in that place and grow our faith. In Christ's name, amen.